Hello and welcome to this BGSM podcast. I'm Ted Pandya, a medical student at the University of Manchester and member of the BGSM editorial team. Joining me today is Dr. Tommy Wood and Chris Kelly, CEO and CMO of Nourish Brands Thrive, the US-based performance optimization company. Tommy, a medical doctor with a PhD in neuroscience, and Chris, a computer programmer and mountain biker, have constructed machine learning models to predict common biochemical models in the athletes and are freshman speaking at the 2017 Bazin Spring Conference. So just go briefly about how did you go about creating a machine learning model to predict uh, biochemical abnormalities? So this is something that uh, Chris has been uh, working on in terms of broadening his uh, skills as a computer programmer and then learning some of the the aspects of machine learning and then applying it to the athletes that, that we work with. And when we work up an athlete that comes to us, we do a fairly broad um, ranging assessment. So that will include you know, standard medical history. We have some subjective questionnaires that people answer. Uh, then we do uh, some blood testing. We also do some urine and stool testing just to kind of give a, a full uh, biochemical picture of, of the athlete in front of us. And initially, uh, we thought maybe we could start to predict some of the more complex tests that we use using the results of simpler tests like blood tests. And actually, uh, during the discussions, we eventually got to the point where we talked about the fact that we have lots of subjective questionnaire data that's uh, standardized uh, using an analog scale. And maybe we could use some of those um, answers to predict some of the biochemical patterns that we like uh, to look for in our athletes. And that was the first uh, set of models that we built uh, using just a standard subjective questionnaire, which is actually a pretty uh, well-validated approach, particularly in sports medicine and sports science, looking at uh, subjective questioning to assess your athletes, and then using those answers to predict uh, some more complex biochemical patterns that we get on other testing. So what have you managed to sort of achieve so far? That, that first uh, approach, that was what we presented mainly at the, at the BASM Spring Conference, and we created five uh, subsets or five biochemical patterns that we might like to predict in our athletes. So uh, suboptimal hemoglobin levels, and this is not a frank anemia, but this is uh, a lower hemoglobin level than, than we might like, which can occur for a, a number of reasons, both nutritional and environmental. Um, and then we would also predict things like gut pathogens. So uh, H. pylori is very common. We have a lot of athletes who are traveling the world or crawling through the mud as obstacle course races, and they often have you know, various parasites or things that could be causing issues. Um, dysregulated cortisol rhythm, so we know when somebody is overtrained, then their cortisol responses become blunted, so we wanted to see if we could predict some of those. Um, low testosterone or estrogen, obviously, depending on um, uh, the athlete in front of us, male or female, so like a, a red S, uh, red type picture. And then something like dysregulated blood sugar, blood glucose, which is really important because uh, the ways that we, uh, most athletes are told to train and eat can actually have some pretty negative effects on their um, glucose metabolism. So those were our five uh, basic patterns. Um, and then based on our subjective questionnaire, intake questionnaire, it's about 50 questions uh, with just um, answers on a scale of one to five. And using those input uh, markers, and we had about 800 athletes, um, we could then predict those patterns. And depending on uh, uh, which one it was, and depending on males and females, we could achieve about 85 to 90% sensitivity and specificity uh, for most of them. So we can predict H. pylori almost um, with 100% accuracy based just on subjective questionings, um, as an example. How did you go about making the questionnaire? So I got into this business. I started Nourish Balance Thrive after having a terrible time with my own health. And I selected a bunch of questions that would have been very relevant to me 
from an NIH data bank of questions. You know, there was a huge set of questions and I just looked at them all and, and thought, oh, is this, would this have been relevant to me as an athlete at that time? And if it was, I pulled it out of the data bank. It's a modular set of questions. And I, I constructed the questionnaire in that way. And it turns out that when you ask other athletes those same questions, like in the last seven days, I felt anxious or in the last seven days, I was dissatisfied with my sleep or in the last seven days I had bloating or, and, and so it goes on for 50 of these close ended questions. And uh, that, that seems to be working really well. It would turned out to be very predictive of the biochemical markers that we're also interested in. So moving forward, what do you think the limitations are of using uh, machine learning? I think the major limitation is having the data in the first place. I didn't even know when I started collecting the data, I didn't even know what it would be useful for. I just knew that it could be useful in the future. In fact, the thing that I thought it would be most useful for was presenting to the client the progress over time. And it is useful for that. But um, it turns out that the, the machine learning experiments were, were far more valuable. Uh, of course, you're not just talking about collecting the subjective questions you also need some other ground truth that you're interested in. So, you know, having both uh, um, the independent variables, the subjective questions and the dependent variable, which is say the level of hemoglobin, that's quite a difficult data set to collect. And so you need to think about these things well in advance of before you do anything useful with a machine learning algorithm. Do you think there are any sort of biases with your data sets because of the fact that they uh, come from athletes who are presented with illness potentially? Yeah, absolutely. So that problem in data science is generally called propensity matching. And so we don't know. We collected a bunch of data on, as you say, athletes that came to us with some specific complaints. And my guess is that if you were to start using these algorithms in the general public, you would see a lot of false positives. So it may be that in order to generalize these algorithms, you'd have to train them using data from specific populations. So that is definitely a problem. Um, but as it happens, you know, for us, it, we have solved our specific problem. Where do you see this technology moving forward to in the future? I mean, that's a, obviously a very difficult uh, question to answer. Uh, I think it's useful to talk about some of the applications that already exist and, and maybe that would give people some ideas about where the technology may go in the future. So you know, my background is in finance. I worked at hedge funds before starting Narish Funds Thrive and obviously that we're using machine learning techniques to predict the financial markets. Uh, obviously it's also huge in sales forecasting. Imagine you own a, a chain of stores and you're interested in knowing what your sales numbers are going to be next month. Predicting the weather, obviously. Recommender systems that you've seen on Amazon.com and Netflix. Have you noticed how good they are at recommending books or movies? That's uh, an application of machine learning. Uh, in medicine, we're seeing uh, classification of images start to come to the forefront. So in particular, uh, classifying a CT scan has been done. Um, we may in the future see uh, these types of technologies driving our cars, right? That would be exciting. Yeah. How can clinicians who are currently working in sports medicine you know, use machine learning in their day-to-day -day practice? I've interviewed several experts on my podcast that have talked about some of the applications that may be relevant to sports medicine clinicians, in particular, uh, diagnosing an arrhythmia using an ECG uh, could be really helpful. Uh, and then also uh, sentiment analysis is possible in text messaging. So imagine you were communicating via text, then it's possible to train a model 
that will tell you whether or not this person is happy or not. And, and that can be useful in a coaching setting because you can bump that person to the top of a list for attention. And then I was thinking about how it might be possible to uh, predict injuries in athletes. So if you're collecting subjective data from your athletes and maybe some other biomarkers too, maybe the athletes are wearing an aura ring and you're collecting their sleep data and their movement data, and of course you know their training loads, I think given enough labeled data, so if you had all that historical data and then you also knew when your athlete got injured, I think it would be possible to train a model that would predict that injury before it happened. Tommy, is there anything you'd like to add about how you could see, you know, as a doctor, you, you would like to see machine learning being used? The examples that, that, that Chris just gave are, are, are very important because they highlight the fact that what, what you need is a fairly or especially starting out as a fairly rich data set. So if you have a good data to start with and you know uh, your population that you're working within, then you can get, um, you can really enhance your diagnostic process. So what the, what the machine learning algorithms are really good at is pattern recognition. And that's obviously something that we spend a lot of time doing as doctors in the diagnostic process. So anywhere where we have some data and we'd like to, speed up or predict uh, something that might happen later on. So uh, it could be that we want to identify uh, somebody who's at risk of, say, uh, REDS or somebody who's at risk of overtraining, and we want to see that much earlier than we might see that currently. You know, you, know, you want to pick up that person before they end up pulling a hamstring or before they end up um, incredibly sick because they've just pushed themselves too hard. So being able to understand the data that we have and see the patterns in data much earlier, I think is, is where we're going to see a lot of that benefit. And it's um, a diagnostic orthosis. So it's going to support our ability to make clinical decisions and perhaps make those decisions earlier rather than replacing um, the skills that you learn um, as a doctor. And if you have uh, some good data sets and you, so you know your athletes and you know what your target population is, so say you work at um, a football club and you know that you're mainly working with footballers of a specific type, then you know that the data you get from those guys is, is going to be probably very specific to them, but that's the that's the population that you care about. And you can collect all that data and then you can start to implement those things much earlier. So it's going to be a process of using this to assist us to um, either predict things that are important to us. So again, it could be um, overtraining, illness, or injury, um, and, and and seeing that much sooner. And, you know, we've also talked about how you could use it for things like uh, concussion prediction. You know, maybe we can use some subjective questioning to predict the outcome of uh, imaging or other biomarkers that are being tested for concussions um, in rugby or here uh, in the NFL. And we can do that much sooner so that we know whether somebody can, you know, should be allowed back on the field, um, and you know how their recovery might be going. We might be able to do that. Uh, much earlier in the process, uh, rather than um, sort of having to having to guess, which is which is what we end up doing a lot of the time currently. And of course, predicting readmissions is an important problem that I've seen presented at conferences. In particular, the JP Onella Lab at Harvard are using an application that runs on a mobile phone, iOS or Android, and they're collecting GPS data along with information from the accelerometer. Basically, everything that can be collected via a mobile phone is collected along with the subjective questioning and sentiment analysis in text messaging. And they've been using that data to very successfully predict whether or not a patient is going to be readmitted to hospital. And, and this is obvious, some of it is obvious when you think about it. If you are somebody 
uh, subjective question and they don't answer, what does that say to you? It, it says that maybe they're not using their phone because they're in bed and I, I, there's a lot of information there. And, and so they've been very successful in predicting hospital readmissions. And that's one of the things that um, I think the algorithms can pick up is um, holes in the data or patterns between data that you didn't necessarily expect. So the time it takes somebody to answer a question on an app, you might not think about that as the clinician, but the algorithm might pick that up. Or it can find um, patterns in symptomatology that you maybe hadn't heard of or thought about. And the example that I have from our own experience is um, predicting, trying to predict hemoglobin levels in athletes. And we had a few cases where we got a, a false positive in terms of predicting low hemoglobin. And actually, when you did, when you measured that person's hemoglobin, the hemoglobin was was high or higher than expected towards the upper end of the normal range. And what it turned out was that those patients had sleep apnea. So it's the it's the exact same process. It's some kind of tissue level hypoxia during the day or during the night, specifically if you have sleep apnea, which would be very similar as if you had uh, a low level of hemoglobin, so you have low oxygen uh, delivery to the tissues. And they actually produce the same symptoms as somebody answering subjective questions. So the algorithm hasn't actually thought anything about hemoglobin. It's picked out the patterns of uh, symptomatology that are associated with a suboptimal oxygen delivery. So things like that can be picked out by an algorithm that you know a, a human may just never think about. So what do you say finally to you know any healthcare professional or student who is looking to get involved in sort of data science, machine learning? I think there's never been a better time to learn these skills. And indeed, so my undergraduate degree is in computer science, but I didn't learn anything about machine learning at university. I'm entirely self-taught. And I've worked for several companies that were using these technologies heavily, including Amazon.com and, and, and two hedge funds. And I, I was never able to learn machine learning skills. It's only more recently that I've been able to learn. And I feel like these days, you just don't need to know that much maths in order to be able to use these algorithms. So my favorite resource by far is Jeremy Howard over at Fast.ai, who is producing some fantastic training courses that are designed for people with just a little bit of coding experience. So, and maybe high school maths as well. And, and, and that's about it. And he has video training courses that you can follow along. And he's produced some libraries and then uh, these things called Jupyter Notebooks. So you need to be able to program in Python uh, specifically. And you can follow along with his videos and, and learn how to solve some of the problems that we've been talking about uh, all online without attending any kind of bricks and mortar establishment. Tommy, anything you'd like to add about that? I, I think in terms of... Uh, somebody who's in a, a traditional uh, training path uh, like yourself, Tej, and like um, I previously went through uh, in the UK, finished my foundation training before I um, left uh, formal clinical medicine. And I think, like Chris says, now is, is one of the best times to do that. There's so many more opportunities for um, doctors uh, and other healthcare professionals to branch out from the more traditional um, model and perhaps uh, provide athletes or patients or whatever they're, they're group of people they want to work with, provide them with um, the kind of care that they'd like uh, to see people being given and you know the improvements that they'd like people uh, to, to see getting in terms of their health or their performance. And I'm certain that this will, uh, these techniques and some of these applications will start to filter into the National Health Service, which I you know, um, 
a huge fan of and I really think we need to work hard to, to keep going. And, and, and things like this will certainly be a part of that. You know, we can um, speed up the diagnostic process, uh, um, discharge patients earlier in a more safe manner if we're using the technology correctly. But I think that some of this is going to have to come from some outside development first, show that it works elsewhere in the real world until it's going to be um, brought into something like the National National Health Service. So uh, th those people who are interested in that can go out into the world, you know, create some of these technologies, uh, show that they work, and then maybe we can bring them back um, to something like the NHS uh, and and uh, strengthen that and improve its own health, which we know is, is something that is, uh, the, the service has been struggling with recently. Thanks very much, guys, for uh, coming on to speak. I'd just like to add that BJSM has over 300 podcasts. Links will be in the description of relevant podcasts and links to Nourish, Ban Nourish Balance Thrive and Fast AI will be in the description. But until next time, uh, thank you for listening and I hope you have an uh, active day. Mm -hmm.